share it, and I'll just pray and kind of dive into it tonight. Y'all help me preach this tonight. All right, so Lord, we just lift this up as we agree together. And make sure there's nothing else playing, any music or anything. I thought I heard something. Lord, I thank you tonight as we come in Jesus' name and through his blood. We just thank you for the heavens being open, your glories here. Lord, I thank you for speaking through me everything that needs to be spoken under a fresh anointing. And Lord, that, that the Holy Spirit will empower this time and as we go into the word of God. And Lord, I thank you for your word going out as living seeds of truth, sown into good soil. Even now, that the Holy Spirit will move upon everybody that's going to be listening or watching this. And that every heart and mind will be prepared by the Holy Spirit to be good soil for what God's wanting to do. Minds will be locked in to get focused, not distracted by all these other things that many times the enemy tries to have all these distractions. But Lord, I thank you by the Holy Spirit. Help us that our minds are just focused on what you're saying. Our hearts are in tune with you. We're, we're able to receive tonight. By the Holy Spirit, help us, Lord, to maybe understand things that we never understood before and see things we've never seen. But, Lord, I thank you for speaking through me everything that needs to be said. It will go into good soil, water by the Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. And let the winds of your Spirit carry this out among the nations. It will get everywhere it's supposed to go. And we stand on the promise it will not return void, but accomplish that which you sent for it to do. Now, Jesus said the birds try to steal the seed. So, Lord, we submit this unto you. And we resist the devil, we must flee. As a church, we bind in Jesus' name, we bind everything that would try to hinder this from getting where it's supposed to be and accomplishing what it's supposed to do. We bind it now, and we command you to back off in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you for freedom in this place and for everybody hearing this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, thank you all for agreeing with me. So as we get into the Word tonight, I've been dealing with a little bit different series. I'm paying the price for revival. We're on part four, and I'm looking tonight, the title will be Remnant. How many knows the Lord always has a remnant in every generation? And so I'm going to read a familiar passage out of First, First Kings chapter 19, but I'm really just focusing on the latter part of it. But just to get it in context, Elijah was fleeing from the threats of Jezebel. He was under an attack. How many knows that that spirit of Jezebel is in, in end-time spirit? but it's also a great enemy to revival. And so you have to be aware of that spirit. It's no joke. You need, to, you need to be aware of it. All right, so Elijah was facing that witchcraft coming from Jezebel. He fled. He, he became suicidal. He was depressed. If, you, if you're under an attack of a Jezebel spirit many times, there's kind of a depression, a discouragement that goes with that. And he ended up, remember, out in this cave and... Um, and the Lord, there was a fire and all of that. The Lord came in and broke the rocks, and, but the Lord wasn't in all of that. So I'm just going to kind of pick up in this story. Elijah's there, depressed in a cave. The Lord sent like a strong wind, broke the rocks, the fire, etc. And then it says this in verse 12, after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing, the sound of the, of the, the Spirit of God right there. He recognized the Holy Spirit. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, which would have been his tallit, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of armies, and for the sons of Israel, I have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone, uh, I alone am left. 
and they have sought to even take my life. And the Lord said to him, go return your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram. So he was anointing a secular king over Aram, okay? You will anoint Jehu the son of Nimshi, king of Israel, and it was a, basically a secular office there of a king over Israel as well. And then anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah as prophet in your place. And so now he was going to have a successor with Elisha. And we know the story that Elisha got a double portion, remember? And so it shall come to pass that those who escape the sword of Hazael, Jehu will put to death, and those who escape the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. But this is what I wanted to get to, because God had to deal with that Jezebel spirit. It's a serious thing. The enemy tries to infiltrate that in, and it's like an unholy alliance, an unholy mixture tries to come in. And Israel was dealing with that. It's a very serious attack. And here's what the Lord said. There had to be all of this happen to deal with this spirit. It was so entrenched in Israel. God had to anoint a secular king to go to war and release judgment. He had to anoint Jehu, who was kind of a, a radical, uh, hardened military uh, officer that had no problem slaughtering Jezebel's family. He had to anoint somebody like that. And then Elisha, who was going to get a double portion and use all three of them to begin to break the stronghold of that. But the Lord said this, though. He said, even in the midst of this, Israel's darkest hour, he said in verse 18, yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. How many knows God has a remnant? He's got a remnant in America. So I'm going to do as I've been doing in these sermons and kind of go in different directions and then bring it all together at the end, okay? So the first thing I want to talk about tonight is being open. How many knows that we've got to be open to God but closed to the devil? But to be open to God means that things may be a little bit different than what you're used to. See, we all grow up in a different, where we grew up, so some have grown up in the south, some grew up in the north. Others maybe grew up in some kind of a really high church, uh, maybe like Episcopal or Presbyterian. Others maybe grew up in Pentecost or maybe grew up Baptist. Some have grown up in families that are black or Hispanic or white. In all these different things, where you went to school, all this stuff is kind of formulated the way you perceive things. And how many knows that we all have our uh, conception of the way we think things should be? But here's the problem sometimes with that. See, we have this box that we think, to, in our minds, we think this right here, this little box, this is normal to me. So therefore, God should fit in this little box and only do what is normal to me. And everybody's got their little box. But here's the problem with that. God's never going to go for that. He's God being God, he's going to do whatever he wants to do, when he wants to do it, however he wants to do it, even if you don't like it. Can you imagine that? <laughs> he is God. And so that means he's not going to fit in your little box of normal or the next guy's because your box is totally different than the person that you're sitting next to, I guarantee you. Because we've all grown up different, have different backgrounds. And I remember that during the days of Brownsville in the 90s revivals, I remember how Steve Hill made it a point, because he was an Assembly God minister. He made it a point as he was going to many AG churches that he was saying, 
how God used a man by the name of Sandy Miller at Holy Trinity Brompton, which was an Anglican church, how God mightily used him, an Anglican minister, to pray over him and him receive so powerfully. Because Brother Steve knew that that was outside of many of their boxes. Now, I'm going to try to tell some stories as I go, as the Holy Spirit permits me. But, but Steve was trying to make a point that God is not confined to your particular denomination. He's not confined to the way our preconceived ideas of him are. And God could use somebody that is not a part of your denomination, not a part of your circle, even somebody that's not a part of what you consider normal. God can use that person in your life in an awesome way as long as you're not going to reject that. And so Brother Steve kept sharing that story, made it a point, because he wanted people to let the walls down. And I remember during the Brownsville revival, over and over he talked about this. He's like, denominations mean nothing. They're just man-made. He said, you can come in this place tonight. And he would say, when you come down here and get things right with God or whether you do or don't, he said, I'll tell you what, when you die, your little denominational tag is either going to burn off when you go down or it's going to fall off when you go up. <laughs> and ain't that the truth? So that was one of the things that the Cambridge revival, I just got back from that area and studying some more about that revival, but that was one of the things that was a big deal to Barton Stone there, the pastor of a Presbyterian church, saw this great move of God. Can you believe that? It was a Presbyterian church that saw this revival. And he had worked in conjunction with, I mean, he had to have help, and he had the several Methodist and Baptist preachers that are out there helping him with a crowd of 20,000, 30,000 people over a seven-day period preaching on a tree branch, on a stump, on the back of a wagon, scattered all throughout that field. They all worked together for the sake of the harvest. And Barton Stone was totally fine with different denominations being used of God together. You see, these man-made walls have got to come down. And I know that God began to move so mightily in the early 90s, uh, you know, not only through Benny Hinn's meetings, but also as he brought in Rodney Harrow Brown. And Rodney's meetings were different. I've been in a lot of Rodney's meetings. They're, they're a lot of fun, and they're awesome, and it's God, but they're different, you know. And so that was something new. And God came in. You know what I believe, and you'll, I'll probably say this several times through this sermon tonight. Why does God move the way he moves with the manifestations of the Holy Spirit and all of that. Why does he do things the way he does it? I, I've thought about this for over 20 years. And I think that at least this is part of it. There's a scripture in the Bible that says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I believe that these things are a stumbling block to the proud, and they're supposed to be. Hello? Hello? But if people will humble themselves, they can receive from God in a way that could affect the rest of their lives, affect their whole families. I mean, a major move of God. But if they're going to sit there with their arms folded and look down their nose in criticism, they're going to miss that move of God. Why? Because God has put a stumbling block there that opposes the proud. So, and I thought about this, and I, I grew up in the, I'm not, I'm not trying to pick on any denomination. I'm just simply making a point before I get off this that, you know, I grew up Assembly of God, and as far as my childhood, my father grew up Assembly of God his whole childhood, and so I've got roots in the AG, and I, and I went to 
Southwestern Assembly God University for a while. And um, so I know about the assemblies, but here's the thing about the AG. When Brownsville hit, it was in 95, okay, so something like June of 95, if I remember right. When Brownsville hit, uh, when Revival hit the church at Brownsville, it was an Assembly God church with Assembly God ministers, okay? But did you know this? And I say this as somebody at Grip Assembly. I'm not being critical. This is just the truth. But did you know that I would say at least 50% of those that were Assembly God in the 90s rejected the Brownsville Revival? Did you know that? Because it was outside their little box of normal. Even though it came to an Assembly God church with Assembly God leadership and even the, the highest leadership in Springfield of that time was saying, hey, this is a move of God. Yet, I would say at least half of the AG churches were against it. Isn't that sad? So my point is, is that you can miss a move of God if you're not careful because of human pride. And I'm going to tell you something, too. I'm getting ahead of myself. This was actually in my notes further along, but I'm going to go ahead and talk about it. When revival began to move in the 90s, and I saw, you know, Benny Hinn meetings, Rodney Howard Brown, and then uh, Brownsville, etc. these were really powerful moves of God, and God began to touch my life. But I actually had people, some of them leaders, that tried to convince me that these were not moves of God and to stay away from them. If I had listened to the wrong people, one of whom comes to mind is a pastor. And he was, he was my pastor for a time. And, um, you know, somebody I respect. And so, but if I had listened to that, hear what I'm saying. If I had listened to him, I would have missed the single greatest move of God in my life. And that's just the truth. And to this day, I love him. But to this day, his church is dead and dry he totally, completely missed a move of God in his life, in his family, and in his church because he rejected what God was doing. It's dead. And that would have happened to me if I would listened to him. You better be careful who you listen to. And here's the interesting thing about that. You know, Steve Hill preached a sermon, too, about blind leading the blind, cane, or what do you, white cane religion. And um, there was an interesting thing he brought out, I'm going to kind of elaborate on it, but during the Welsh revival in 1904, God was moving so powerfully in the nation of Wales. I mean, it was an awesome move of God. I would say within a fairly short amount of time, 100,000 people got saved. I mean, it was a major move of God. And there was a man who was a pastor, and he was influential in that day. And um, his name was G. Campbell Morgan. Wonderful man of God, and he loved the Welsh Revival, loved it. He saw how God was using younger people. He, he loved it. In fact, he loved the Revival so much, he wrote a little pamphlet about it, and that was what Frank Bartleman, one of the things he was doing in Los Angeles, he was praying and fasting, but he was also giving out to some people that little pamphlet from G. Campbell Morgan about the Revival because he was trying to stir up in people a hunger for Revival. So G. Campbell Morgan was influential, and he was telling people the Welsh revival was of God. But here's the thing that blows my mind, and this isn't the only example I can use, but for the sake of time, even though he saw this move of God and he was for it, 
when the fire jumped from Wells to the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles, and God began to use William Seymour, and revival started breaking out there, the emphasis was, yes, people getting right with God, but the baptism in the Holy Spirit in tongues, I don't know if that was the issue, but G. Campbell Morgan, the same guy, looked at the Azusa Street Revival and said that it was emphatically not of God. And he said it was, this is what he said. He said, it is the last vomit of Satan. How in the world could a man of God like that miss a move of God on that level? And here's the sad thing about it. He probably, because of his influence, caused a lot of people to go to hell that didn't have to because if he would have used his influence to say Azusa is of God, there would have been more people that went to it, got baptized in the Holy Ghost, and got sent out to the mission field and won even more to the Lord. And everybody knows now that Azusa Street was of God. The same thing with R.A. Torrey. He was a man of influence. He believed in the gifts of the Spirit. I actually have a book in my office by him on the gifts, and it's a good writing. And he loves the Lord. I believe he's a wonderful man of God. But for whatever reason, he looked at Azusa Street and said this. He said, it's insanities worthy of a madhouse. Today, the way we would talk today, it would say this. Those people are crazy and ought to be locked up. That's what he said about it. He missed the move of God. So just be careful that you don't miss the move of God and listen to the wrong people. How many knows that not everybody knows what they're talking about? Now let me shift over to something else. Let me talk about the institutionalized church for a moment. It seems, though, that every time there's been a great move of God, that pretty soon it becomes somehow man gets a hold of it, man begins to control it, man begins to make it into something of man, the revival dies, it becomes a denomination, and pretty soon it's only a shell of what it used to be. There's no power, and it, they just talk about what was, and it's all about just being educated, and it's no longer about the power of God. We need to be educated we need to know the word, but we also need the power of God too. How many know Jesus knew the word, but he also was a man of power? Amen? And so we need to have both in our lives, but it gets lost. So Satan is a master at this. And so let me just talk for a moment about the institutionalized church. Just like during the Azusa Street revival, as that revival went on, and began to wane at some point, man began to make it into various denominations. That's how the Assemblies of God formed. That's how the Church of God formed. These different older uh, Pentecostal denominations were those that were touched during those days of Pentecost revival, but it became a denomination. And I'm not picking tonight on any denomination, okay? I'm not. I want this to be just a blanket thing about all denominations and all various groups of people. Okay, but if we're not careful, it pretty soon becomes just a structure of man. You lose the power of God. 
And let me tell you, and I'm, I'm saying all this, I'm choosing my words carefully and saying all this with the right spirit. But see, one of the things that comes in is church politics. Pretty soon, what happens is, is man forms some kind of a structure, whether you call it a denomination, a fellowship, or whatever. Man forms a structure, and because they need leadership, pretty soon, it's become something everybody either votes on, it's who has the biggest ministry, who has the most money, whatever it is, people get put in positions of power. And it becomes a political structure. And I've seen some things I could talk about in different groups that I'm not going to get too much into. But how many knows when you start getting political, man, it becomes a major problem. And God laid on my heart a long time ago to stay outside of church politics and stay outside of, of things that are of man, structures of man. And so, I'm, again, I'm being really polite. I don't feel that I have to live my life kissing so-and-so's hiney. I'm being very polite. I don't feel that I've got to shake the right hands, meet the right people, rub the right shoulders, be afraid of this person or this group because if they like you, they can really do a lot for you, but if they don't like you, they can blackball you, etc. That's what happens. It's man's control, and it becomes, it becomes like an illegitimate authority. It becomes something controlling and oppressive. And there is such a freedom being outside of all of that. Just like the devil has different demonic spirits that traffic through witchcraft and the occult, and among the witches, there, there are occult spirits that traffic through there, a lot of them. Just like that, listen to what I'm saying. The devil has religious spirits that traffic through church politics, and a lot of them. People become, if they're not careful and they don't deal with the iniquity in their hearts, people become power hungry. They want position. They want the limelight. They want power. And this is where things like a religious form of the Jezebel spirit comes in. It's an illegitimate authority, and it's ungodly control. It's exerted through various forms of manipulation or intimidation, but it's there to control. And you've got to be very careful with this because a Jezebel spirit tries to creep in every move of God. And also traditions of men. Jesus dealt with that. So here's what's going to happen. I, I'm hoping I'm not losing people tonight, but I'm trying to make a point here. You have this religious structure of man. Then you have religious spirits trafficking through it. Pretty soon, you have like a Pharisee type of spirit. And I feel like I'm kind of coming up against this tonight, uh, spiritually speaking. And now there's traditions of men. Where do these come from? Jesus dealt with the traditions of men in his day. Listen, something hijacked what Israel had with God, and it became about the Pharisees and the Sadducees oppressively controlling. It became just a structure of man. It was political. And Jesus lived outside of that, and they hated him. Why? Because they couldn't control him. And those re religious spirits, <clears throat> excuse me, those religious spirits traffic through that, that traditions of men, those pet doctrines. How many knows every group has their pet doctrines that are not necessarily biblical, 
but they believe them, and it goes from parent to child down the generations, it's a stronghold. There are people that have grown up in certain groups that have been taught from, from the time they were a child, their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, it's in that denomination, it's infested that they emphatically do not believe in speaking in tongues. Do you see what I'm saying? Or they're against healing, or they're against the deliverance ministry among Christians. Whatever it is, they have their traditions of men, their pet doctrines, and they have their man-made political structure, and they've set up their walls against other groups that believe different than them, and uh, different types of religious Jezebelish type spirits traffic through that stronghold. Is this painting a little bit of a picture tonight? And unfortunately, because that is allowed to go on and it creates like a satanic stronghold, a stronghold in people's minds, a political stronghold that's got a, a stranglehold on that whole denomination, man's control, because of that, it is like a castle, like a spiritual stronghold that resists true revival. And it's difficult for the Lord to move into that because this is what the Lord said about it. New wine cannot go into an old wineskin because it will burst the thing. In other words, if the Lord tries to move the way he needs to move in that structure, it will destroy that structure all to pieces. That's why you read about people like John Wesley. He first went to the churches, and he got kicked out of one after the other. The institutionalized church didn't want the revival. So what did John Wesley do? This is all true and historically a fact. He had to go into the streets because the church wouldn't receive him. Jesus ministered in the synagogue, but they didn't want to hear it a lot of times. The religious people that day did not care for his message or his ministry. And what did Jesus end up doing? A lot of his ministry was out on the seashore, was out in the cities, was in people's homes, etc. Why? Because the institutionalized church, if you will, didn't want it. Isn't this interesting? Well, let me move to the next thing. So I'm going to talk about something tonight in the way of the history and then I'll bring it all together at the end. But I do want to talk about manifestations of the Holy Spirit. But let me just emphasize again, please be careful who you listen to. If God has done a work in your life, don't let the devil use people to steal that in your life. Okay? Be careful. I feel like that's a warning for different people. Be careful. Because the devil has Pharisees and Jezebels and different people that if he can, he will use them to kill that revival in your life. And here's a quick sad story about that. There was a man that during the Brownsville revival, and I heard the, the pastor talk about this, he was a man of influence in the community. And God was moving so powerfully that, you know, basically people were falling out under the power and, and just manifestations of the Holy Spirit shaking and crying and laughing, all these different things. And he basically said, I can't have my kids doing that because it'll affect my reputation in the community. So he took his family out of the revival. Well, listen, it didn't end well. It ended up that his kids 
it didn't turn out well. How many knows that you need your family right in the middle of a move of God? Don't keep them out of it. Put them right in the middle. Those young people need the fire of revival. So let me talk about the Hebridean revival just for a moment. Now, this is tonight I'm talking about a remnant. This is really important what I'm saying because in this institutionalized church system, it seems that the emphasis is on big buildings, lots of people, notoriety, famous preachers, big, big money, big events, things like that. But how many knows that a true move of God historically, I can show you here, but I could keep going on and on for a long time about different, but it's always birthed usually with a very small group of people in prayer. Did you know that? I read to you about Edward Miller. How many people did he have? Four. Remember that? Counting him. And that was where it all started. So it's usually that's how it begins. And then once revival breaks out, it goes to the masses. But this is what I've seen. Now, I've been in ministry long enough that I've seen this. People in Dallas, anyway, I'm sure it's the same way everywhere. But a lot of times somebody gets an idea. And, you know, it's about this big event. And I'm not against events. They can be really useful. But it's about a big thing that's going to go on. So they get everybody hyped up. That, you know, the, uh, the advertising of it looks amazing. They'll try to get famous speakers to come. And these things can be good. But they have all these, you know, and it'll be in a big place and get everybody all excited. And everybody rallies in there. And there probably is some good things that happen. There'll be some people get saved and all that. And we need that. That's all good. But at the end of the day, after the event in Dallas, about a month later, it's as though the event never even happened in the first place. Does that make sense? I've seen it over and over and over and over and over and over again. I mean, this revival is not an event. See, I think that a lot of people really don't know what a, a sovereign move of God, because this, this Hebridean revival spells it out really well tonight. Like, a lot of people don't really actually know what revival is. But as I describe Hebrides, you're going to see it. They think it's a big event that people get hyped up about. But that's not revival. God can use those things, but people get burned out of that. You have this big event, then, then it's kind of a letdown because it doesn't really sustain, and then, then the next big event, then the next one after that, and pretty soon, after a decade of events, people start getting burned out, and they get tired of it, and they don't even want to bother with them anymore. Do you see what I'm saying? Why? Because it's like being hyped up. But in the Hebridean revival, let me just give you some history. The Hebrides is a group of, a small group of islands off the west coast of Scotland. In 1948 to 52, four years, God poured out his spirit in response to a handful of praying men and women. I'm just reading this. It doesn't take multitudes to move the hand of God but those that will push through the crowd and touch the hem of his garment. Let me say it again. It doesn't take multitudes to move the hand of God. So here's some history about it. What is the Hebridean revival? How did it happen? Well, there was a meeting in the church of Scotland in Stornoway, and a group of men discussed the awful condition of the church in their communities. They came together and talked about it. How many knows that we could have a meeting like that right now? 
in the Dallas area. The worldly places like the bars and the dance halls were full, but yet the churches were emptying out, especially they were concerned about the young people, had no interest in the things of God. Among those concerned were about seven men. These seven men committed themselves that they were going to begin to pray until revival came. They felt that God, now this is really important too, don't miss this point, because the Hebridean revival had a lot to do with faith in a covenant-keeping God. They felt that God was faithful to his word and his covenant promises. Therefore, if they would do their part, that God would do his part in sin revival. They stood on the promise of 2 Chronicles 7.14. And that night, they entered into a solemn covenant before God to enter into prayer until revival came. Months passed, but for three nights a week, they wrestled with God in prayer. It was dry. It was dead. It was difficult. Finally, one night, one of the young men arose from, from his knees and began to read Psalm 24. And it read like this, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? That speaks about going up into God's presence. Remember how Moses went up into the presence? Who will ascend the hill of the Lord? And it says, he that has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his souls to, to idols nor sworn deceitfully. And so this young man began to pray by the Holy Spirit moving on him. He said, Lord, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? In response to this searching challenge from God, the other men fell on their knees and they began to deeply repent of anything in their lives. After hours of deep repentance, they were exhausted, but revival was being birthed among them. The glory of God began to fill that barn. And from that little barn with a handful of prayer warriors, a power was let loose that shook the whole island of Lewis before it was over. Now, at the same time that these men were praying in a barn, and I've heard different accounts where there are a few others that came, but again, you have seven, maybe up to 12 men that were there. At the same time, there were two elderly women. Her, their names were Christine and Peggy Smith, and they were in the village of Barvis, and they were in deep intercession in their home. These were sisters that lived together. One was blind and the other was crippled up from arthritis. And they both were in their 80s and they were shut-ins. But they devoted themselves to prayer and deep intercession. It reminds me of that story um, in the New Testament about Simeon and about Anna. Remember how they devoted themselves to the temple. And Anna was an intercessor. Anyway, they had a burden at the same time that those men had a burden in the barn. These two elderly women also had a deep burden from God that the island of Lewis needed revival. In deep prayer, they felt that a man named Duncan Campbell was supposed to come. But as they sent for him, he was already booked with another meeting. And they said, he is to come God said it, and he will be here in a fortnight. You know he was. When you hear from God, 
And they also felt that they needed to enter into a covenant promise with God, standing on the scripture that states this, I will pour out water upon him that is thirsty and floods on dry ground. They stood on that promise, that if they would do their part to pray, that God would send water on dry ground. That was something really important about this revival. In the island of Hebrides, they understood that God was faithful to keep his word. If we will do our part, God will do his part. Okay? So one night, Peggy, in prayer, had a vision of the church filled with young people. And so she called for her pastor and told him he should have the elders and the deacons begin to gather together for prayer because God was wanting to move. So the same night that that power broke loose in that barn in Barmas was the same night that the sisters in deep prayer felt to send for Duncan Campbell. So Duncan Campbell comes. This is a powerful story. Duncan Campbell comes in this old church there, this old parish, Duncan preached there the first night on the wise and foolish virgins. You remember that? How the wise were ready, the foolish were not ready. The people came with expectation, but nothing seemed to have really happened on night one. Duncan was a little discouraged. You know, they leave out, people are leaving these beautiful kind of green rolling hills, so to speak, going back home. They're streaming away from the church, and Duncan was standing there kind of discouraged about everything, like, you know, They've been praying for revival. I come all the way here. I preach my heart out, but it doesn't seem like anything is going to happen. But here's, I'm telling you, these people in Hebrides, they had faith. And one of the deacons is standing by, the, by Brother Campbell and says, Brother Campbell, don't be discouraged. It is coming. I hear the rumbling of heaven's chariots. In another account, he said, the Holy Spirit is brooding. After the meeting, some of those that were there, they were not necessarily discouraged, but they knew that God wanted to move. So they began to gather together and really seek God in deep prayer. And they prayed all day. They prayed into the night. And around 3 a.m., God swept in, and a dozen or so of them were laid prostrate on the floor as the group left the cottage, they found men and women seeking God. Something broke while they prayed. Something shifted during that time of intercession. In the middle of the night, now, people were being awakened. Some were kind of walking around. They, they couldn't sleep. No one seemed to be thinking about sleep. Three men were found laying by the roadside in a torrent of conviction, crying out to God to have mercy on them, the Spirit of God began to break loose. Now the church in Barvis was about to be stirred and the community impacted. It's the power of prayer and intercession right there. So now night two, Duncan Campbell comes back to this same church. The intercessors prayed. Something broke outside of the church. People were being affected. And so Duncan begins to preach on Matthew 25 again, but he focused on the foolish virgins who were not ready. Now buses began to come for the four corners of the islands, and people were crowding into the church, 
Seven men were being driven to the meeting in a butcher's truck when suddenly the Holy Spirit fell on them. Great conviction overtook them, and they were all saved before they even got to the church. As the preacher preached his convicting message, tremendous conviction of the Holy Spirit swept over the crowd that were there. Tears began to roll down the faces of the people. Men and women cried out for mercy from the four corners of the church. So deep was their distress that some of the cries could be heard outside in the road. A young man beneath the pulpit was crying out, Oh, hell is too good for me. Something broke open in those first two days. For five weeks after that, five weeks, the power of God was so strong that Duncan had to conduct four services a night for five straight weeks. Did y'all catch that? Four services a night for five weeks. He would preach at that church at 7. Then he would go to another at 10 o'clock. He would go to the third around midnight and finally back to the first at 3 a.m. He didn't even finish until it was 5 or 6 in the morning before he could lay down and get some rest. This happened for five weeks. The two intercessors, though, this broke loose in Barvis. I mean, it shook that whole village. But the two intercessors began to feel that the Holy Spirit now was wanting to go beyond just Barvis. And they would tell Duncan that they felt the Holy Spirit was moving toward this direction. So the next place was the city, Arnold. And it was probably the hardest area spiritually but the spiritual tornado was on its way to Arnold. <laughs> Men stood, this man was in a house in Arnold. He began to pray. Remember, these people understood faith and they understood covenant. And a man stood and prayed in Arnold for that area. He was concerned. He was praying in a house. And this is how he prayed. He said, Lord, he said, I don't know how everybody else is, but he said, I am dry and thirsty. And you promised that you would pour out water on dry ground. And he said this. He said, with faith and humility, he said, your integrity is at stake because I'm hungry and thirsty. And when he prayed that, people were witnesses to this. The house began to shake. The dishes in the kitchen began to rattle. God's power was let loose and broke forth in the village the drinking house was emptied when the Holy Spirit moved in. People roamed the streets again. Now, understand, this is outside of the four walls of the church, okay? People roamed the streets under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Others knelt by their bedside in prayer and repentance. A preacher during this time walked into a house just for a glass of milk and found the lady of the house with seven others down on their knees crying out to God. Within 48 hours of that man praying in that house, within 48 hours, the drinking house was empty and the crowd that was usually there drinking had been gloriously saved. Among those that were saved that night was a young man by the name of Donald McPhail. He became an outstanding prayer warrior during this revival. In fact, here's just a little snippet of history that might interest you guys. But Donald Trump's family goes back to the Hebridean revival. And Donald was named after this guy, Donald McPhail. Donald Trump's mother is related to those two elderly intercessors. I believe it's her great aunts. And it was interesting 
that the mother, Donald's mother, had received a Bible that was used in a special way in the Hebridean revival, and she gave it to Donald Trump, and he made sure that his hand was on that Bible when he was sworn into office as our 45th president. So in the meeting, though, in Arnold, in one meeting, the power of God swept loose, okay? So now the Holy Spirit is moving not only in Arnold, but moving over to um, Bernaray or Bernara, however you say it. The atmosphere was heavy. So this city, Duncan Campbell goes there. He's going to hold a communion service, but the atmosphere was oppressed. And so Duncan Campbell saw Donald McPhail, and he says, Donald, would you stand to pray? And Donald began to pray in this church, okay? It was oppressed. And Donald had a vision. He saw that there was like some kind of an opening, like a door or window that was open. And he saw through the opening, he saw the Lamb of God on the throne. And I believe what he saw that opening, I believe that was an open heaven that was over the Hebrides because of the revival. Y'all follow me tonight? And so Donald began to pray, and he said, Lord, there is a power that is available. Let your power break loose. And the power of God out of nowhere swept into the meeting where they were at. And it was so powerful, the nearness of God was felt that many ended up on their face, prostrate on the floor, so much so that those present said it resembled a battlefield. It was said by those that were there in those days that God seemed to be everywhere. Outside the church, the Spirit of God was sweeping over homes and the areas surrounding the village. Many people came under such a strong conviction of the Holy Spirit. Fishermen out in their boats, men behind their looms, men in the pit bank, merchants out in their trucks, school teachers examining papers. The Holy Spirit seemed to be everywhere. By 10 p.m., after that broke loose in that church, again, the roads were streaming with people from every direction making for the church. Again, the Holy Spirit broke loose in another city and began to move upon the people. And it was so powerful that people were awakened at night and they couldn't sleep. And I'll read something here in a minute about this more that Duncan Campbell talked about from his perspective. But the Holy Spirit was moving now in this other city. And one man that was there was frightened by what his sister told him about the revival. And he actually prayed that Duncan Campbell would stay far away from this village. But yet Duncan came. The Holy Spirit began to move, and he ended up in Duncan's meeting. The conviction was so strong that he finally broke down and gave his life to the Lord. And Duncan knew the danger of allowing human sympathy to try to console people. The Holy Spirit was convicting. How many knows that is dangerous? If the Holy Spirit is convicting people and moving upon people, leave it alone. Don't make them feel okay in their sins. Don't try to offer human sympathy and get in the way of God. Let the Holy Spirit convict them and bring them to repentance. So he offered no superficial comfort to those in distress, but he only pointed them to the cross as the remedy. Now let me kind of bring this Hebridean revival to a close, but I wanted you to see how a small group of people prayed in a mighty move of God that shook their entire region. Duncan Campbell wrote about this, or actually preached on it, rather. 
And you can listen to him talk about this right here on YouTube right now. I mean, it's available. When God stepped down, you can look it up. But Duncan Campbell spoke about this, and he said this, and I quote, When God stepped down suddenly, people all over the parish, all over the church, were gripped by the fear of God. God are in the barn. God are my hands clean. Is my heart pure? The moment that that happened in the barn in Barvis, a power was let loose that shook the whole of Lewis. God had stepped down. The Holy Spirit began to move upon the people. The minister writing about it said, you met God in the meadows or the moorland. You met him in homes of the people. God seemed to be everywhere. What was that, Duncan asked, revival? Not an evangelist, not a special effort, not anything on the basis of human endeavor, but an awareness of God that gripped the whole community. My dear people, do you good folk understand what revival means? Have you a conception of what it means to see God working? The God of miracles, sovereign and supernatural, moving in the midst of men, and hundreds swept into the kingdom. Oh, that we might see it. Man, he talked about this revival. And this was some of the things he went on to say. He said there was one night within 24 hours, he had to speak in eight different places because the Holy Spirit fell. He said there was one night that there was a dance, and the dance hall was full, and there was a young man that was praying in the aisle, crying out to God, and the power of God entered into that dance hall, and the people fled there like those fleeing from a plague. Over a 100 young people fled the dance hall and made for the church. Duncan came in to preach and had a hard time getting to the pulpit because of all the young people that were weeping before the Lord in repentance. He talked about a police station. Neighboring villages up to five to six miles away from the police station. That's a long way five to six miles away from this police station, people were so gripped by the fear of God, awakened in the middle of the night. And they were so gripped with the fear of God that they knew that the constable there at that police station was a man of God. So they made for the police station thinking that this man can help us. People came in from five to six. And so Duncan was asked to come to a police station in the middle of the night, mind you. Are y'all following me tonight? There was a drunk man there named Willie. His mom was kneeling beside him weeping. Among all those that gave their life to Jesus that night, there were nine young men that got saved and went on into the ministry, and one of them was that young man named Willie. And Duncan goes on to talk about, he says, another situation. 11 p.m. one night, 11 p.m. in the middle of the night, six to 700 people began to gather to a church. By 11.45, the whole church was packed. And Duncan said, how did they even know there was going to be a meeting? What drew them to the church in the middle of the night? He said, asking some of them later, why did you come? He said that they stated that some kind of a power came over them and made them realize 
that they were hell-deserving sinners, and they thought the only place that I could possibly find help was at the church. So in the middle of the night, they got up and made for the church. That's a move of God. That's not a special endeavor. That's not human effort. That's God. And again, Holy Spirit moved. All of them, they got saved that night. It was awesome. Because of the presence of God and awareness of God that gripped the community, the churches now were crowded during the day and right on into the night till five or six in the morning. In revival, time does not exist. Duncan Campbell stated that the, before it was over, the Isle of Lewis was known for almost nothing of backsliding even after the revival because people had abandoned the bars and the taverns and they no longer went back to their life of sin. Isn't that awesome? After the revival waned years later, all those people got saved. He said that Isla Lewis almost knew nothing of backsliding because the Holy Spirit did such a work. Doesn't that stir you up to want to see that? Let me tell you something. There was only 7 to 10, 12 men in a barn a couple elderly ladies that a revival, something broke loose in that barn that worked its way throughout the entire Isle of Lewis, city to city, shaking it with the power of God for four years. For the first five weeks, it was so intense that they had to have four services a night. But it continued on for a total of four years, and that whole region was shaken with the power of God. And let me tell you, there is no reason why the power of God cannot break loose right here in this church that can shake this whole community. There's no reason that can end up moving throughout the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex and begin to move out throughout this nation. There is no reason. If not now, then when? If not here, then where? There is no reason except a lack of faith. And these people understood faith. They said, Lord, if we do our part, you will certainly come down and do your part. And he did. So now let me kind of bring it all together, but I want to talk about the manifestations of the Holy Spirit as I close this thing out. God is a God that is sovereign and supernatural. How many knows he answers to no one? He will move when he's ready to move, how he desires to move, whether we like it or not. He's God, okay? But God does oppose the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In another scripture, the Bible says, God knows the proud are far off, but the humble are near. Let me give you some quick things about in times past. I gave you this already, but in the great Cambridge revival of 1801, remember the mighty manifestations of the Holy Spirit? Those that were there said, among the 20 to 30,000 people, it says as the Holy Spirit moved, it said it looked like a battery of guns had opened up because so many people were swept down under the power of God. Manifestations of the Holy Spirit at Cane Ridge, people, shrieks, people violently shaking under the power, some of them rolling around on the ground under conviction, trying to run and just collapsing under the power of God. In Charles Finney's meetings, Charles Finney would be preaching and a group of people would be listening and the Holy Spirit would move in so powerful that while he was preaching, 
there would be people sitting there that will come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and they were just so gripped with it that they would just collapse out of their pew on the floor. Some of them in a fetal position. And there had to be ushers that would come and pick them up and carry them down to the altar and plop them down in front of Finney and he would lead them all to the Lord. And the weeping and the groaning and the wailing as the Holy Spirit moved upon people. In the Azusa Street Revival, people heard the groans and the travailing prayer of intercession, groaning and travailing that went well into the night. People were hit by the power of God. Uh, while even, listen, even those that were not necessarily inside of the Azusa Street mission, people that were maybe a block away, sometimes they'd be hit by the power of God and affected by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? That happened even in Argentine revival that Carlos Anaconda would be preaching and somebody off in a distance, not even in the meeting, would get hit with the power of God. Sometimes people come in in Azusa and just kind of pile up under the power of God, just collapse. Both Wesley and Whitfield saw a manifestation of people shouting or screaming and then falling under the power. Jonathan Edwards, as he preached, not only sinners in the hands of an angry God, but as he preached, as the Holy Spirit was convicting, people were kind of white-knuckling the pew in front of them, feeling that they were going to go into hell. That was the conviction of the Holy Spirit. In Edwards, people began to weep and to wail and heavy breathing as they were convicted to the point that Edwards, who was not shouting, he was kind of monotone, but he had to tell them, please, if you can, keep it down so people can hear what I'm saying. (laughs) John Wesley recognized falling to the ground as a manifestation from God, and he records many such instances. In fact, George Whitfield in his ministry criticized Wesley about people that would just scream out and clap. He criticized him until it started happening in his meetings. Then what's he going to say? Let me read to you this account. Many of you have heard about Jonathan Edwards and and how God broke loose in his church, and you've heard of this. Even in school, we've heard about the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Well, let me just tell you about the first great awakening that shook our nation in the mid-1700s. Jonathan Edwards described the Holy Spirit's activity as this. He said, when God did, as it were, suddenly open people's eyes and let into their minds a sense of greatness of His grace, the fullness of Christ, His readiness to save them, Their joyful surprise had caused their hearts, as it were, to leap so that they had been ready to break forth into laughter. So he actually saw holy laughter in his meetings. Y'all believe that? It says, tears also the same, issuing like a flood. People weeping uncontrollably, loud weeping. It was a very frequent thing to see houses full of outcries, Faintings, which means falling under the power. Convulsions, meaning people shook under the power. For such the like, both with distress and also with admiration and joy. Many remaining perhaps a whole 24 hours motionless. Can y'all believe that? Think about this. We skip over these things. Can you imagine we leave and come back? Somebody's been here 24 hours under the power of God. He said 24 hours motionless with their senses locked up, 
But in the meantime, they were under a strong imagination as though they went to heaven and had visions of glorious and delightful things. Isn't that awesome? So they'd be locked up for 24 hours. That actually happened in Mariah Woodworth Edwards' meetings. People go into a trance. And then, they, you know, hours, days later, they would come out of it. And again, as I've read, Duncan Campbell describes in the Hebridean revival, God came down. The presence of God was so strong that churches would fill up with sinners seeking God on their own out of nowhere. Great conviction of the Holy Spirit would fall upon them. Many would weep, wail, cry out, some even pounding the floor, beating, even sometimes beating their head on the floor, weeping and wailing before God. The sounds of weeping, the sounds of wailing, the deep intercession, praying in the Spirit were common at the Brownsville Revival as well as falling, shaking, crying, and laughing. So let me say one more thing. <clears throat> this might be the most important thing, and then I'm just going to read over some manifestations and end it that way. But I want to bring this all together. In dealing with revival, two things. Number one, we've got to have unity. I'm showing you that his, history records that God's always had a remnant. And usually... For the sake of time, I can't get into this, but usually it was a very small group of people that were unified in prayer, fasting, crying out to God, deeply repenting of their own sin, that something broke loose with them that ended up releasing revival. Do you see what I'm saying? So if you're really going to go after revival, River of Life, listen to me, if you're really going to go for it, and I think some of you guys know this. Not everybody really wants revival. And when you start really going after revival, not just talking about it, not just being inspired by the stories, but you're really going to go for it for real and get radical like you read about here. Don't be surprised, as we've been experiencing some, that numbers don't dwindle down because not everybody's interested. But... God will bring it to a place where you have a remnant. And this remnant is really serious with God. They're in unity. They're deeply repenting of their own sin. They're crying out to God. And that remnant can see something break loose that literally could affect millions of people, even nations, because it broke loose in that little group. Historically, it's a fact. But let me tell you about the power and the importance of unity. God himself even recognized in Genesis how the Tower of Babel, though it was evil men and it was evil intentions, yet because they were unified in purpose, God said that what they do will be successful. Therefore, I must go down. And what did he do? He confused their speech. Why? To divide them. And Jesus, on the contrary, said that a kingdom divided cannot stand. So you see the power of unity, and you see Jesus' warning that a kingdom divided, a household divided, cannot stand. Are y'all listening to me? And so listen to what I'm saying. If it is, listen, if, you, if we're praying and God speaks to us, and we really feel that something's of God, and we begin to unify in prayer about it, even if there's a few things here and there that are not 100% perfectly God, but we're in unity 
and we're crying out in unity, hear what I'm saying. God will answer our prayers. God will give us success. God will do what we're asking, and God is such a good God that he will even iron out any wrinkles of imperfection. But even if what we know is 100% God, there's no doubt about it, it is his will, and we begin to pray about it, if people are divided, it's a guarantee that it will not be successful and will not happen and be doomed to failure. Did everybody just hear what I said? Even if it's not 100% perfect, if you're, if you're in unity, God will still do what you're asking, and he'll iron out the wrinkles, and he'll bless you, and he will give you success. He'll work it out. But even if it is God, it will fail if you're divided. Psalm 133 says, how good and pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. What is it? The flow of the oil from the head down. The oil flows, and there, God said, I will command my blessing. Remember that on the day of Pentecost, they were all in one accord. There's got to be unity. And so, River of Life, I'm asking to all of us, and I believe that we are, but let's be unified in our crying out to God for revival. I believe that a power can let loose in river of life, just like that barn in Barvis that can begin to move out into the communities and begin to save the lost. But many times God will start things in humble surroundings like a little barn in Barvis, like a little Susan Street mission that used to be a stable where they had to scoop up manure and build little planks of pews. And God will come in humble circumstances, many times in small numbers, in a, in a way that, that seems to man like it's not God because it's so humble. This deals with the issue of human pride. And remember that your church is not the only one on which God will pour out his spirit. Once we try to box in revival, that's the end of it. Now, let me say about manifestations. I just kind of want to read through this. You know, when you deal with the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, uh, shaking, falling, laughing, crying, etc., and I'm going to read them here. I'm going to give you scriptures. But can you imagine, River of Life, just look this way, give me your best ear here at the last part of this. Can you imagine if the Apostle Paul was here today telling his story, and they didn't know it was Paul, just telling his story in about, 90% of the churches out there in America, he gets up and says, you know what? I was going down the road and a bright light appeared and threw me to the ground. I was blinded for days. Those that were with me heard something and fled and here I was hearing and seeing the Lord tell me, why are you resisting me? Why are you against me? I was led by the hand to a man's house who prayed for me and these things, these scales fell off my eyes. And I was baptized in the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. <laughs> How many of you think that he would get run out of most churches today? You know he would. All right, so see, here's what happens. When you see manifestations of the Holy Spirit, you can't take out your camera and just take a snapshot of that moment in time and make all your judgments on that. You've got to take out your video camera, and you need to follow their life and find out what has happened in their life after that. 
Because how many knows that before Paul experienced what he did, he was against the Lord. He was pursuing Christians and putting them in prison. He was there holding the robes as people killed Stephen. He was one man then. But if you took your camera out and took a picture of him while he was on the ground writhing around or whatever, speaking in tongues, all these things, you just took a picture, people can make snap judgments. But how many knows if you get out your video camera and you look at the man that he became? Then you have to realize, now wait a second, Paul really did have some kind of an experience with God. This was real, and his whole life is different now. He's a different man, you see. So in dealing with the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, I'm just going to read them and close with this. So number one, speaking in tongues. Acts chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 and remember Mark chapter 16, these signs follow them that believe in my name. They'll drive out demons and what? Speak in new tongues. Also falling under the power of God. That's one of the most common things in revival. Ezekiel 1.28, also 3.23, Daniel 10.9, Revelation 1.17. Remember John fell like a dead man. Uh, John 18.6, do you remember when they came to arrest Jesus? And he said, they said, where's this Jesus in Nazareth? He said, I am. And they all drew back and fell. <laughs> Acts chapter 9. Also, number three, deliverance of people from demons, even in the middle of church. You remember when Jesus was, pre or Luke 4, 33, and the demon-possessed man cried out right in the middle of church. So deliverance from demons. Also, Number four, jerking, shaking, trembling, shaking under the power. Daniel 10, 7, Jeremiah 23, 9, Habakkuk 3, 16, Psalm 99, 1, Psalm 114, verse 7. It's not that these things aren't in the Bible. It's just that the people that don't like these things don't want it to be in the Bible, and they don't accept it. You see, it's there. Number five, trances. That's what happened to Peter. He was in a trance. He had this, can you, okay, let's all just appreciate this for a moment. Let's appreciate Peter coming into most churches today. <laughs> Here's Peter's story. Well, I was on this rooftop. All I know is I went into a trance and I saw this sheet coming down from heaven and opens up and there was all kinds of critters in there and God told me to kill and eat. You know, as well as I do, they'd run Peter right out of most churches. But see, you take your camera out and just take a snapshot of that, you can make snap judgments, can't you? But why don't you get your video camera and follow Peter now to Cornelius' house and see the Holy Spirit fall and a harvest come in and realize, oh, wait a second, Peter really did hear from God. That really was the Lord. Those type of things happen in Mariah Woodworth Edder's meetings as well. All right, and that was Acts chapter 10 as far as trances. Number six, shrieks, shouting whatever shrieks. Acts 8, 7. You remember Philip went to Samaria and demons came out of people with shrieks and all these powerful healings took place. Number seven, groaning and moaning and wailing. Romans 8, 26. And what you guys are hearing a lot of times with these intercessors, the deep groaning and the deep travailing, 
The Bible says in Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit will pray through you with groaning too deep for words. It's a deep calling unto deep. Also, intense weeping or laughing. That seems to be a stumbling to many. Nehemiah 1.4, Ezekiel 10.1, Psalm 126, 5-6. But I've seen many intense weeping or laughing, but on the other side of it, God had done a tremendous work. Also, deep bowing. I saw a lot of this at Brownsville. People just bow over. The deep bowing. This also on Cane Ridge. Um, those that were there said, I mean, it was so violent back and forth. They said, you couldn't do that if your life depended. I was the Holy Spirit. But Ezra 10.1, Psalm 35, 13 through 14. Number 10, obviously laughing. Psalm 126, 1 through 3. Proverbs 17.22. Um, also being still and solemn. Psalm 25, 5, 27, 14, 131, 2. Sometimes the Holy Spirit just moves upon people and they're still and they're solemn. Another one, number 11, is being drunk in the Spirit. How many times have I seen people drunk in the Spirit? I've seen people have to be carried out. I've seen people have to be wheeled. One young lady was, we were at this place and she was so drunk in the Spirit. Um, those that were with me had her on one of those at the hotel, you know, those luggage carts things were wheeling her to her room, man, you know. Drunk in the spirit, Acts 2.13, Ephesians 5.18. Visions and dreams, when the Holy Spirit is being poured out. How many knows the Bible says that he will pour out his spirit on all flesh? Young men dream dreams, old men have visions, so there's visions and dreams. Acts chapter 10, 9 through 17, Joel 2.28. Number 13, here's another manifestation of the Holy Spirit. People confessing and repenting of their sins and also making things right. If they've stolen something, they make restitution. If they wrong somebody, they apologize. That's another manifestation of the Holy Spirit. People repenting and making things right. Number 14, this is the last one I'll read. Major healings and major miracles. Matthew 12, 13. In times of revival, major miracles. You know, people talked about at Azusa Street that there was so many, the Holy Spirit would come in, the glory would be so thick that just incredible miracles would take place. I know that uh, one account was that there was a man that literally had no arm. He had a prosthetic arm, had no arm. And William Seymour and those that were there began to pray. And those that were present said that that arm completely grew out. And they were watching it in amazement. I mean, if this was happening in front of me, I'd be watching every detail. I'm sure they were. And they said that the fingers came out, and they said then fingernails began to form right in front of their eyes. Creative miracles. And also, when heaven invades earth, and God's glory comes in with great power like that, great force. His glory comes in. People have reported in that atmosphere seeing angels, seeing a glory cloud, seeing fire in the building or on top of the building or on the heads of the people. Some have reported that there's been like gold dust appear in places. Some have even said that gems have appeared out of nowhere. Sometimes some have reported in revival that supernatural oil appeared, running down walls, on podiums, etc. 
in Bibles. And finally, even manna appearing. This is a really neat story, but there was a, a lady saying that manna appeared in a Bible. And as they opened it, it said it looked kind of like matzah, but it was oily, really oily. In fact, the oil got in the, all over the Bible. So what they do, they took communion, especially with those that were sick, and used the manna, and they said that many people were healed that night. Isn't that awesome? So in times of revival, how many knows that God is going to do some awesome, awesome things? How many believe that God could break loose here in River of Life that could affect communities, cities, could have an effect on this nation, could even go to the world? Man, I believe it. I believe God's wanting to pour out his spirit here, and I believe he's wanting to pour out his spirit in other places as well. But just like in the Isle of Hebrides, a power can break loose here that will shake all of Dallas, Fort Worth, and beyond. How would you guys like it tonight that we open the door and there's people streaming in? Seriously, from the neighboring communities that, that is like, well, what are you doing? They said, I don't know. Well, what's going on? All I know is that I was trying to sleep, but something came over me, and I feel I'm a hell-deserving sinner, and that if I was to die, I'm going to hell, and I need help, and the only thing I could think of was that church there. And they start making for the church. So you go out there and begin to preach Jesus, and they're swept under the power of God. There are, many are saved. How many knows God can do it, wants to do it? The only problem is, is we've got to press in and believe him to do it. So, Lord, I thank you for these stories tonight. I thank you for your word. You're an awesome God, sovereign and supernatural, just like Duncan Campbell said, Lord, that you would step down. Lord, that the, the community, this region, this nation, Lord, be shaken with the power of God. Lord, that, that millions be swept into the kingdom. And, Lord, we just thank you for what you're wanting to do. Let revival come, Lord. Stir up a hunger. Stir up a faith in us to believe you that you're a covenant-keeping God. If we do our part to humble ourselves and pray and seek your face and turn from our wicked ways, then you will do your part to hear from heaven, forgive our sin, and heal our land. God, we ask you to do it again like you did in Cane Ridge, Lord. Come down, do it again like you did in Hebrides and Wells. Lord, that the Spirit of God would fall. Lord, that people be gripped with the fear of God. And Lord, people in great numbers swept into the kingdom. Lord, that you would stretch out your hand and heal the sick. Lord, that you would deliver the captives. And Lord, that you would baptize in the Holy Ghost. And Lord, we would see Book of Acts Christianity right now in our generation. Lord, let it come. Stir up a hunger in us. Lord, we ask you in River of Life, that you would even come upon us in such a way like you did Edward Miller's group in the Bible school. Lord, that there's such deep uh, prayer and intercession, Lord, that it literally affects a nation. Lord, you can do it, and you're wanting to do it. Lord, we yield to you. Come upon us, Lord. Use us as vessels, Lord, to pray through us what you're wanting to do in this region, in this nation, and around the world in these latter days. Lord, that you would pour out your spirit on all flesh and bring in the harvest. Lord, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and shut down recordings.
So I want to pray tonight for those that want prayer, but I feel also the intercessors. Let God use you. I'm trying to make as much room. I know we have Tuesday night prayer, and I know we gather. 